You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33. Exodus, chapter 33. For the past several months, we've been in a study in the book of Exodus, which we've called Be Set Free. And this morning is actually going to be our final study in this series. It's been a great journey, and now we've come to the end of it. Next week is Easter Sunday. We're very excited about that. We hope you are too. We're going to be having two services, as you've heard already this morning, so 9 and 10.30 a.m. The 9 a.m. service will be a family service, which means that kids are welcome to be in service with their parents. And the 10.30 a.m. service will have, um, will have children's ministry as usual, so you can decide which of those is best for you and your family. And we encourage you also to invite your friends and family to church. That's one of the reasons we're doing two services, so that we have extra space, so that you can invite friends and family, and so that people who come to our outreach on Saturday can also have room to come to church here on Sunday. You know that studies show that most people who don't go to church have been, when they're interviewed, they say that they would go to church if they were personally invited by somebody. Most people say that they would. And on top of that, Most people say that the time when they are most likely to go to church is Christmas and Easter. So you have all the odds in your favor. And so we encourage you to be bold and take a step of faith and maybe invite somebody to join you this Easter Sunday here at Whitefields. Uh, Our services are going to be a little shorter that day and we're going to be focused on Jesus and his resurrection and what it means for us. So it's going to be a great day. So that'll be next Sunday. And then the Sunday after that, we're starting a new series here about the parables of Jesus. So looking forward to that. But this morning, we are going to be in Exodus chapter 33, and we're actually going to follow this all the way to the end of the book. And if you're curious how long that's going to take, it's not going to take any extra time. You'll see why. Let's go ahead and begin by reading our text this morning, starting in Exodus chapter 33. So let's begin by reading Exodus chapter 33, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. To verse 15, Moses said to the Lord, If your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that this morning as we open it, Lord, that we would truly hear from you, that you would speak to us, Lord, and that we would have ears to hear, and that we'd be receptive to the message that we hear from your word this morning. We, we ask that you'd help us to put these things into practice in our lives. We don't just want to be hearers of your word, but we want to be doers of it. So we pray that you would give us the strength to do that, and that this morning we would truly see your glory, your power, and your beauty displayed in Jesus, and that as a result we would be changed and transformed. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So the word exodus means departure, it means departure. And the book of Exodus 
tells the story of the departure of the people of Israel from Egypt where they were in bondage and slavery. But really that, the departure part of it, the departure from Egypt is really only the beginning of the story. Uh, the departure from Egypt, if you look at it as how much of the, a portion of the book of Exodus it takes up, it only takes up the first 14 chapters. But in total, there are 40 chapters in this book, which means that the majority of the book of Exodus takes place after God has set the people free from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And for you and I, I think there's something very important to notice in that. There's an important principle there, and that's this. That being saved, being set free, is only the beginning of the Christian life. That's a very important step. If you haven't taken that step yet, you, you absolutely need to. But yet, at the same time, it's really just the beginning. Once you've taken that step, once you've put down your yes and said, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, once you've moved from unbelief to belief, and you've accepted God's free gift of salvation in Jesus, that's when the true story really begins. Everything that came before that is really just the prelude and the preamble to the real story that begins at that point. And so here in Exodus, we have a picture of the salvation that God brings in the, the true story of how God set Egypt, or Israel free from Egypt. And after setting them free from bondage in Egypt, God then led the people, we read, through the wilderness to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And for an entire year, they stayed there at Mount Sinai. That's what we've been reading about for the last several chapters. It was there at Mount Sinai that they entered into a covenant relationship with God. It was there that God gave them his word and they learned about God's heart and what God is passionate about, what he cares about. And they received instructions about how to worship him and how to live in a way that would please him. And now here in chapter 33, God speaks to them finally and says, now it's time to take the next step. Now it's time to move up and move out from this place and take the next step in their spiritual journey to what lies ahead. And so here in chapter 33, again, we're looking at their next step in their spiritual journey as God tells them to move forward to what lies ahead. And that's the title of today's message, Forward to What Lies Ahead. As we look at this text and as we get to the end of this book, it brings up some very important questions for us to consider for ourselves and for our lives. And here's what those three questions are that we're going to be looking at over the next, uh, next little bit. Number one, what if you could have everything you've always wanted without God? What if you could have everything you've always wanted without God? Number two, how does a tent become a sanctuary? And number three, what is the next step for you to take in your spiritual journey? So let's begin by looking at the first of these questions and considering this. What if you could have everything you've always wanted without God? So a few weeks ago, I was preparing to go out of town. I went on a 10-day trip to Eastern Europe where I was speaking at a conference. And I was visiting some of the missionaries and ministries that we as a church support over in uh, Hungary and in Ukraine. I've taken trips like this before, and uh, you know my kids are never very excited about the fact that I'm leaving, but usually it's fine because I bring them back. You know, I tell them I'm going to bring them back special gifts and stuff like that, and that usually kind of tides them over until I get back. But this time, the night before I left, my daughter was so upset that I was leaving, she was really inconsolable. I mean, she was hyperventilating and sobbing. She was very upset. And in my weak attempt to cheer her up, I told her, you know, listen, if I go, I'll bring you back a, a present from one of the countries I go to. And I asked her, what, you know, what would you like me to bring you back? And her response broke my heart. Through her sobs, what she told me was, I don't want any presents. I just want my daddy. 
And, and that broke my heart. Now, I, I look at that, I think of her response, and that makes me think of what we see here in Exodus chapter 33. Let me explain why. Here in Exodus 33, Israel is coming off one of the darkest events in their history up until this point. It's an incident with the golden calf. Maybe you remember the story. We looked at it a couple weeks ago. The people had just entered into a covenant with God. They had seen God's love and faithfulness displayed for them and how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And in response to that, they took a vow and they were so enthusiastic and I believe they were absolutely sincere and they took this vow that for the rest of their lives they would always honor and obey and love God and be faithful to Him. They swore upon their very lives. They said, if we don't do it, then may our blood be shed. And they were absolutely sincere in doing this. But before long, it seemed like things weren't exactly going the way that they had hoped that they would go, or at least expected that they would go. And they mistook the patience of God for the absence of God. And after only a few short weeks, they began to say, well, you know what? If the Lord isn't going to give us the things that we want, then, uh, then maybe another God will. Maybe we've just got to stop trying to get it by looking to God and maybe we just need to find it another way. And they proceeded to make a God for themselves in their own image, they, a projection of, of themselves in the image of a golden calf, a golden idol that they worshipped. And of course God saw this and he was deeply upset by it and he was deeply hurt and offended by it. But ultimately he forgave the people for this sin that they had done. But now here they are on the other side of that and the question is, where do you go from here? Where do you go next after having done something like this? What is the future going to look like now? Because, okay, they're not going to die, but they've blown it. And I mean, surely there's no way that God is going to let them go to the promised land and fulfill this promise after, after they've just blown everything, right? They've just uh, given up on following God now after what they've just done. And yet, here this chapter begins with an amazing phrase. God tells them, even though you haven't kept up your end of the deal... I'm still going to keep my promise to you. I'm still going to take you into the promised land. Even after all their faithlessness towards God, God is still going to remain faithful to them. We actually read that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. tells us this incredible truth about God. That even if we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. Furthermore, in verse 2 here of chapter 33, God promises to send an angel before them to give them protection and give them guidance along the way. And he says at the end of chapter or end of verse 2 that he will also give them victory in all the battles that they face. But, and this is a big but, verse 3, he says I will not go up with you. In other words, his immediate powerful presence will not go up with them as he has up until this point. In other words, they can have the promised land, but they won't have him. They've been camped out here at the base of Mount Sinai for quite some time now, and now it's time for them to take their next step and move forward to what lies ahead, to this land which is flowing with milk and honey. Now, to most of us, that probably doesn't sound very appealing or appetizing. In fact, it kind of sounds kind of gross. It kind of sounds like a stomachache waiting to happen, right? Like just a bunch of milk and honey. Sounds kind of gross and sticky. But, uh, but you've got to think in terms of what those words signified and represented for these people who were farmers and herders, right? So milk represents health, it represents livestock, and livestock represents food and finances. In those days, you didn't have a bank account or an investment account where you kept your portfolio, right? The, the wealth that you had was measured in the amount of cattle and livestock that you owned. So a land flowing with milk, that represented fertility, it represented livestock. Honey meant 
that it was good land for farming, good fertile land for farming because honey comes from bees and bees pollinate plants and crops. And so for people who live off the land, uh, this, this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey, would have been what every person in that society had always dreamed of because it signified prosperity, health, security. It, it signified what we call in our day quality of life. And I want you to think about that, quality of life. Now, isn't that what most people move to Colorado for? I mean, where we live. That is why people move here because here in Colorado, we have a great quality of life. We have tons of natural beauty. We have great weather. Like if the sun doesn't shine for two days, we start to get depressed. At least I do, right? We, we have tons of stuff to do outside. Good paying jobs, healthy lifestyle. It's relatively safe. There's not a lot of crime. It's a good place to live. We have a very high quality of life. And that's what a land flowing with milk and honey represented to these people. Quality of life, health, security, prosperity. And what God is telling them here is this, is that he is going to give them everything that they've always wanted in this world, but they won't have him. They can have everything they've always dreamed of, but they won't have him. They won't have him there to ruin their fun by telling them what to do and what not to do. They won't have him there to worry about pleasing. They won't have to worry about whether they are, what they're doing is what God wants them to do or not or, or whether he approves of what they're doing or not. They won't have to worry about worship and making sacrifices. They won't have to worry about the financial burden of, of all of these things and building that expensive tent called the tabernacle where God said that he would dwell among them. If he's not going with them, there's no need to spend that money. There's no need to give a portion of their income to God's work because, well, God's saying, you guys go do your thing. I'll give you everything you want and you won't have to worry about me. They will be able to have everything they've always dreamed of and they can live however they want. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? Like if you offered that to most people today, if you said you could have anything you want, you can live however you want, don't ever have to worry about God ever again, how many people do you think would say, sign me up? Probably a lot. In fact, I would go so far as to say that this is one of the main reasons why we have seen a decline in religious adherence in the Western world in, in the past, in the recent history. Western world meaning Europe and North America and Australia. I don't know if you know this, but interestingly, religious adherence amongst all religions around the world is on the increase. So it's on the rise around the world. More and more people are becoming more and more religious in all countries of the world except for the West. So in North America, Europe, and Australia, religious adherence has been steadily declining for about the last 200, 250 years. But if you look at the countries also with the highest standards of living, Oftentimes there's a correlation there. So oftentimes the countries where they have the highest standard of living are also the countries where you see the highest rates of atheism and the lowest rates of religious adherence. Countries like Sweden, the United Kingdom, France, Australia, and the United States to a little bit lesser degree than those others. But in the United States even we have regions where that's more characteristic like the Northeast and the Northwest. So why is it that as a community's standard of living increases... Religious adherence tends to decrease. Well, one of the reasons is because people begin to say, well, if I already have everything that I want, right? Like if I already have a pretty good life, then what do I need God for? If I've already got everything that I need and I can get everything that I want, well, then what do I need God for? I've actually had people say those exact words to me. In fact, the same pattern can be seen 
in the history of the people of Israel in the Bible. A little bit after where we're at now, in the book of Judges, we see that in particular. By that time, the people of Israel had settled in the land of Canaan. And what happens is this. There's this recurring cycle. There's this pattern that you see over and over. That when things are going well for them, they stop following God. They stop worshiping God. They neglect the ordinances and the feasts and the commandments. But then, whenever they face a crisis... Then they turn back to God, they get on their knees, they pray, and they seek God, and they beg Him to come and intervene and help them. And it even gets to the point where God says, eventually by the end of that, He says, look, if this is what it's going to take for you to seek me and turn back to me, well then fine, I, I will remove my hand of protection from you, and I will allow foreign armies to attack you and to overcome you. And He says, because that's how much I care about your spiritual well-being. And eventually this is what leads to God allowing the people to be overrun and taken into exile in Assyria and then in Babylon. But the point is this. Our basic tendency as human beings is this. We tend to see God as useful for helping us get the things that we really want in life. We see God as useful. And, and here's what happens. When we no longer see ourselves as needing God's help, well then he's no longer useful to us and then we tend to follow the same pattern that the people of Israel did, where we tend to ignore him or even cast him aside altogether. Now, of course, doing so fails to recognize some very basic truths. For example, that everything we have is from God. He's not only our creator, but he's our sustainer, which means that every beat of your heart, you are necessary for, you need him to give you the, that heartbeat. Every breath that you take you need him for that. But this brings us back to a fundamental question that we have to ask ourselves. Do you worship God primarily because you view him as useful? Or do you worship God because you see him as beautiful? Do you worship God because you consider him useful? Or do you worship him because you consider him beautiful? If you only see God as being useful to you, to help you get the things that you really want in life, then it's actually not so much him that you want as it is the things that he can give you. But then think about this. What happens if, for example, God doesn't give you the things that you wanted or the things that you asked for, or he doesn't do it in the way or in the timing that you had, had in mind or that you expected? Or what about this? What if you already have a pretty good life? Then what do you need God for if the only reason you worship him is because he's useful? In those cases, God is no longer useful to you. Now let me ask you this, what if you could have everything you've always dreamed of having without God? If you could have the nice house, the trophy spouse, the perfect family, the good job, success, fame, recognition, health, and a heavy dose of protection to protect you from bad things happening to you, is that really all you want? Do you really want God in your life or do you just want the things that he can give you? This is basically the question that the people of Israel are confronted with here at this point. Would you be happy with receiving everything you've always wanted in life without him? Or will there be something that awakens in your soul that says, Lord, unless we have you, unless we have you in fullest measure, then all the other stuff is empty. Because that's the truth of the matter, really, that without the reality of God's presence in your life, Apart from a relationship with him, all of those other things are really momentary and they're empty. And to the credit of the people, 
Check out their response in verse 4. We read that when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. And it's kind of surprising how torn up they are about this. Disastrous news? Is, this really, is it really fair to call this disastrous news? I mean, God is offering them success, security, prosperity, but at the cost of this, there will be a distance between them and God. And the people say, no, that's terrible news. We don't want that. And Moses says an incredible thing. Starting in verse 12, Moses goes and speaks to God, and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And he says in verse 14, Lord, if your presence will not go up with us, then we won't go at all. Do you understand what Moses is saying? He's saying this. He's saying, God, if this is the choice, if we have to choose between the promised land and your presence with us, then we're willing to forego the promised land completely. We're willing to give it all up in order that we might have a relationship with you. Even if it means that we've got to live in the desert for the rest of our lives. Even if it means that we're going to eat manna for every day of our lives. And we'll never have those things that we dreamed about having. We're willing to pay that price because this is that important to us. Everything they had always dreamed of. Success, prosperity, health, security. They were willing to give it all up in order to have a relationship with God. It's that same sentiment that was expressed by my daughter on the night before my trip when she said, I don't want any presents. I just want my daddy. It's not the presents I want. It's you. It's not what you can do for me or what you can give me. I want you for who you are. I want you in my life. I want to know you. I want to interact with you. I want you to be near to me because I don't view you primarily as useful. I view you as beautiful. And gifts are nice. But what I really want, what I really need is you, yourself. And you are more precious to me than anything that I might ever get from you. These people considered the prospect of distance between them and God to be disastrous news. And here's why. Here's why. Because they had caught a glimpse of God's glory. You remember back in chapter 19, God let them see just a faint glimpse of a little bit of his glory God's glory, of course, what is that? It's the manifestation of God's power and God's beauty made visible for us to see. And they caught a slight glimpse of it and they didn't ever want to be without it ever again. Because here's the thing. One of the defining characteristics of a person who has truly come to know God is that they want more. They want more. They want more of Him in their life. They aren't satisfied with just getting things from Him. No, they want Him Himself. They want more of Him in their life. Because like Moses, like the people of Israel, they've caught a glimpse of God's glory, his power and his beauty, and they'll never be the same because of it. It had an impact on their lives, and as a result, they'll never be the same. And so the question, though, that we got to ask is this. What does that mean for you and me? How do we see the glory of God in a way that changes us and causes us to see him as ultimately beautiful and more desirable than anything else in the world? Well, we're going to talk about that in just a second because it actually ties in with our second big question that we see here in our text, and that is this. How does a tent become a sanctuary? How does a tent become a sanctuary? The final six chapters of the book of Exodus, this is why we're moving through this section so quickly. The final six chapters of the book of Exodus deal with the building, the construction of the tabernacle. Now, we've already actually talked about the tabernacle a couple weeks ago when we studied in chapters 25 through 31 in our study called A Dwelling Place for God. If you missed that, you can always catch up with our stuff online. Uh, You can listen on our podcast. But here was the deal. God gave the blueprints to the people for a special tent, the tabernacle. 
in which he was going to dwell in their midst as they moved away from Sinai and where they would come to worship him and make sacrifices of fellowship and of dedication and of atonement for sins. And now as he's calling them to move on from Mount Sinai and move forward to what lies ahead, they need now to construct the tabernacle and all of the elements that go into it. And so that's what happens in chapters 35 through 40. Now here in chapter 33, before the tabernacle is constructed, we see an interesting development take place. It says in chapter 33, starting in verse 7, we read that Moses used to take a tent and he used to pitch it outside of the camp, far off from the camp, and he used to call it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent, which was outside of the camp. So even though the tabernacle, the big fancy tent, wasn't constructed yet, That wouldn't stop Moses from seeking God. He took an ordinary tent, just one of the tents that they lived in. He took it, he went outside their camp, and he pitched it out there, and he would go there regularly, and he would seek the Lord. And this is what we read from verse 8 to verse 11. It says, Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at the door of his own tent, and they would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent, the tent of meeting. And when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. So Moses takes an ordinary tent, and it becomes the tent of meeting. It becomes this sanctuary, this holy place where he meets with God. And I love how it says this, that when Moses would worship, that everyone else would rise up and worship too, each in the door of his own tent. Now I'll speak to you who are moms or dads, or maybe you're gonna be moms and dads someday, or maybe you're a husband, or maybe you're somebody who has anyone in your life who looks to you for leadership. So I think that kind of encompasses just about all of us, okay? If there's anyone in your life looks to you for leadership, I want to speak to you about this. Moses wasn't doing this for show, and yet he did it in plain view of the people. He wanted them to see what he was doing. He wanted them to see him going to seek God and worshiping God in this tent. He wanted them to see that he was doing this and going to this place and seeking the Lord. Moms, dads, husbands, those of you who have anyone in your life who looks to you for leadership, that's most of us. Again, please take note of this. Moses prompted the people to draw near to the Lord by giving them his own example. Moses prompted the people to draw near to God by his own example. I want to encourage you to do the same. Let me encourage you that with your kids or your spouse or whoever it is who looks to you for leadership, let them see you seeking the Lord. Let them see you reading your Bible. Let them see you praying and seeking God. Let them see you giving of your time and energy and financial resources to the work of God. And don't, it's not about doing it to put on a show or to make them think that you're more spiritual than you actually are. This is rather a form of leadership that they would see an example and a model that they can follow. See, that's what leadership is all about. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus says this interesting thing. He says, the student is not above the teacher. But everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. See, the things that you do, the behaviors that you have, they have an incredible influence on those who look to you for leadership. At the end of the day, in the people you lead, you will reproduce 
who you are, not what you say. I'll say that again. You will reproduce who you are, not what you say. In those who look to you for leadership, they will pick up on your behaviors more than they pick up on your boundaries. They will pick up on your behaviors, not so much your boundaries. People are much more observant than we tend to realize. So one of the things that a counselor could tell you, anybody who's a counselor would be able to tell you this, people tend to know a lot more about their parents' values and behaviors than their parents expect or realize. That's probably true of most of us in here. There's probably a lot of you who, you know a lot more about your parents and what they did and what they said and what their values were than your parents realized that you did. Now keep that in mind and remember that your kids are no different, right? They see and they observe a whole lot more than you think that they do. And they're learning from you by what they observe. They're picking up on your values based on what they see in your behaviors. And what you say is one thing, but they will learn more about your values from your behaviors than anything else. You can teach people what you know, but at the end of the day, you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. And those under your leadership will imitate your behaviors for better or for worse, much more than anything that you say to them. So one of the most effective ways that we can teach and lead others who look to us for leadership is by modeling these kinds of behaviors that we would like to see reproduced in them. That's what we see here with Moses. Later on at the end of the book, again we see another tent. In chapter 40, we read about how the tabernacle was finally constructed. It was completed. The people erected the tabernacle for the first time and they dedicated it to the work of the Lord. And it says there at the end of the book that the cloud covered the tabernacle and that tabernacle now became the tent of meeting, the place of worship and seeking God. And it says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And throughout all the journeys of Israel, the Lord's presence was with them in a cloud by day and a fire by night. And that brings us back to chapter 33, doesn't it? Where God makes this promise and says, Surely I will do as you have asked. I will go with you. My presence will go with you every step of the way. And we see at the end of the book that truly God kept that promise throughout all of their journeys and their wanderings. The tabernacle was really just a tent until it was filled with the presence and the glory of God. That's what transformed Moses' simple tent that he pitched outside the camp. That's what transformed the tabernacle from being just a big fancy tent into being a sanctuary, a holy place where people met with God. You know, the same thing happens here in this gymnasium. It's just a gymnasium, but it can become a sanctuary. And that's true of your life as well. Apart from the presence and the glory of God, you realize this, your life is just a tent. That's what the Bible compares our lives to. In 2 Corinthians, it says that your life is like a tent. That one day is going to be folded up and discarded. It's a temporary dwelling, something that will not last forever. Those of you who have had tents, you know how tents work, right? They get worn out. Eventually, they start to come apart at the seams. And one day, they get folded up and they get discarded. That's what our lives are like. Apart from the presence and the glory of God, that's all your life is. But here's the incredible thing that this tells us, that the tents which are our lives, our bodies, they can actually become something more than that. They can become sanctuaries of the living God. Paul the Apostle says this in 2 Corinthians. He says, if you're a believer, then your body is no longer just a tent, but now it's a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. And that brings us back to the question I asked just a few minutes ago. How do we see, how do we experience the glory of God in a way that changes us? 
Well, one of the most amazing statements that's made in the Bible is found in the, the Gospel of John, right at the very beginning of uh, John's Gospel, his account of Jesus' life. John was one of Jesus' disciples. He was the one, he refers to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loved. And it doesn't mean that Jesus didn't love the other ones. It just means that John was very much aware of the fact that Jesus loved him. And I love that. But John begins his account of Jesus' life by saying this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word, that's the name that John is using for Jesus. Why does he call him the Word? Why doesn't he just call him Jesus? Well, there's several reasons, but I'll I'll keep it real simple right now. The reason he calls him the Word is because John wants us to understand that before this person was born as a baby in Bethlehem and given the name Jesus, that he existed from eternity past. That he was with God and he was God. Meaning that he is God and yet he's a separate person from the Father. And, and the reason, again, he, he goes on to say that is then he says this in chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word, the Word who was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God, the manifestation made visible of God's power and God's beauty was made most clear in Jesus Christ. He is God, taken on human flesh, come to dwell among us. And that word dwell is an interesting word. It literally means to dwell in a tent. Or you might even go so far as to say, to tabernacle among us. In other words, in the person of Jesus, God became flesh and dwelt in a tent like these earthly bodies that we dwell in, these temporary dwelling places that are our bodies. And in Jesus, God became flesh and tabernacled among us. And in Jesus, we see the glory of God, the manifestation made visible of God's beauty and God's power, the power of God that's greater than sin and more powerful than evil, and the beauty of God, his love, which is so great that he would even suffer and die in order to save you. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that it is as we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for you in order to save you by giving his life. As you consider the gospel anew and afresh every day, it's as you do that that you will be changed. As you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus, as you consider the gospel, the depth of your sin and the height of God's love for you displayed in Jesus, that you will go from seeing God as useful and you will begin to see him as incredibly beautiful. The simple tent that is your body can become a holy sanctuary filled with the light of God's glory. Because when you embrace the gospel by faith, when you say, yes, Lord, I receive what you did for me. I receive it by faith and I give all that I am to you for you to be my Lord. God's spirit at that point comes into your life and begins to dwell inside you. Bible tells us that the Spirit comes into you as a seal of God's promise to redeem you. And immediately His Spirit begins to do a work inside your life from the inside out of transforming you and changing you. Not only does He begin working in you, but His desire is also beyond that to work through you in the lives of other people. You become a vessel for God's Spirit to work in and work through so that others might also come to see and know His glory as well. And that brings us to our our final question today, which is this. What is the next step for you to take in your spiritual journey? Here at the end of the book of Exodus, God is calling the people to take their next step 
in their spiritual journey, this journey that they're going on with him. And for them, that means taking the next step is building the tabernacle, constructing this thing that God has told them to construct. And then it means for them to get up and move out from Mount Sinai. And the theme which we've chosen for this year at Whitefields is related to this. It's the theme of moving forward to what lies ahead. We want to do that as a church. Moving forward, we're excited about what God has for us in our future and we're pursuing that. But we also want to encourage you uh, actively to, we want to encourage you, we want to challenge you to consider what the next step is for you personally in your spiritual journey. And that's going to mean different things for different people based on where you're at on that journey. Wherever you're at, we as a church, we want to be able to help you make those next steps, whatever that is for you. For some of you, you're just getting started on this journey. You've been dipping your toes in the water and testing things out, but the next step for you is for you to dive in, for you to put your yes down and and to embrace the gospel wholeheartedly and then to get baptized or to take our Christianity 101 class and really become a committed follower. Others of you, the next step is for you to become Move from being just a believer, believing the truths of Christianity, taking that next step to becoming a disciple, a committed follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus. Maybe the next step is for you to join a a community group or to begin doing devotions at home with your family or your spouse or to integrate your faith and your work in a greater way. Maybe the next step for you is to begin obeying God in an area of your life where that hasn't been the case. Or maybe it's to cut something out of your life that's detrimental. Or it might be maybe the next step for you is for you to begin serving in some capacity. Or it might be for you to begin sharing your faith with others. Maybe for you the next step is for you to begin giving financially. Whatever it is, I want to encourage you to ask that question and then to act on it. What is the next step that God would have you take? Jesus Christ, he lived and he died and he rose from the dead so that you might be set free. I want you to remember this as we conclude the book of Exodus. That that, being set free, is not the end of the journey. It's not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Amen? Lord, we thank you for this journey you've called us on to go with you. We thank you, Lord, that you have done everything to set us free. I pray for anyone here among us today who has not yet accepted that, who has not yet been set free by embracing the gospel. Lord, I pray that anyone in our midst who's in that situation, that today would be the day where they say, yes, I I embrace what you did for me, Jesus, and I want to follow you. Lord, I pray for those of us who have already begun this journey. Lord, would you show us what the next step is for us to take in our journey with you? Lord, would you indwell us with your spirit and change us from the inside out, transform us, And Lord, may we see you, may we see your glory in the face of Jesus, and may it motivate us not to see you as useful, but to see you as beautiful. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, Be Set Free, a study of the book of Exodus. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.